and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. I'm Tasia, And I'm Corinne. And today we're going to talk about the books Carry On and Wayward Son by Rainbow Rowell uh, with our very first guest, our friend Melissa. Melissa, do you want to tell us about yourself? Hi. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to talk about these books. I listened to your guys's uh, intro episode and then your fangirl episode and so I guess the easiest intro would be like I met you guys the same way that you met each other <laughs> yep and Corinne and I live in the same city which is really cool and exciting yes um and yeah so that's how we all know each other and then I am just a person who is obsessed with magical boys and <laughs> lives online basically Excellent. And you also have a couple of podcasts of your own if you would yes, like to talk about I have them. two podcasts. So uh, the first one is called Wild Pretty Things. And that is that was originally a Sharp Objects recap podcast, if you guys remember that show from oh, yeah. like 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have spun off from that talking about things that we can thematically or like creatively connect back to sharp objects so anyone we talk about like everything eliza scantlin because she was in that show even if it's not like thematically relevant but then we talk about like gone girl because you know they're written by the same person it's it's a yarn wall of topics basically (laughs) over there and then um i do a Mad Men. it's technically a rewatch podcast because that show has been over for a while but i've never seen it before so I'm coming to that for the first time and then my co-host Matt and Annie have seen the show before so they're like kind of guiding me through it and we're looking at it to see the show's called Still Great Bob and we're looking at Mad Men to see if it is truly still great or if uh the 2004 sensibilities tacked on to the 1960s is maybe not still great here in 2020 but we'll (laughs) see it's going well we're in the third season excellent I still have not seen Mad Men one day I got a podcast for you. <laughs> I know. I've got it. I've got it all ready to go. Yeah, perfect. It's oh. free with ads on IMTV TV. Oh. <laughs> There's That's my Mad Men Cool, yeah, because it was on Netflix and then it went away, right? Yeah, it got pulled like when we were in the middle of the second season and we were like, cool. How dare. <laughs> <laughs> like, people are definitely going to keep watching this show, I think. Oh, God. <laughs> That's nice. I love when they like play games with all of our favorite shows and move them around and take them away. It's not very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're so excited you're here. Thank you for joining us, Melissa. Um, part of the reason we really wanted you to be on the show is not just because of your experience doing podcasts, but we know we have a bunch of friends who really like these books, but we know that you particularly <laughs> really love these books. Um, and so- you are like the reigning authority on dreary, so uh, it seemed relevant. Right. Thank you. I should so. have said that in my intro. Well, I did kind of. I mentioned Magic Boys. Yeah. Yeah. The and OG like, fair Magic warning, Boys. I'm drinking my coffee right now, so I'm only going to get like squealier about <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's this. If we had said in our introduction episode that we, you know, obviously want to take a very critical approach to a lot of these books, which we're going to do, but these two books in particular. Are, they lend themselves to a lot of squealing, swooning. We we just love these particular magic boys, and and we'll get there. So that's just welcomed and encouraged today. Um, so before we dive into the books themselves, we want to talk briefly about what we are obsessing over this week. What's what's new and cool in our worlds, Tasia? 
Uh, well, I finally, finally started season six of Schitt's Creek because it just dropped on Netflix. And, um, you know, it's Schitt's Creek. So yeah. it's love. It's really good. It is really good. I liked the last season a lot. It made me, made me cry. Oh, yeah. All the, all the tears. Yeah, for sure. That continues into season six. So, oh, yeah. Just like nonstop. My mom texted me the other day. She finished. She's like, why am I crying? I was like, because it's good, mom. <laughs> <laughs> what are these? What is this water on my face? <laughs> this face happening. Yeah. Uh, Melissa, how about you? Uh, well, this week I've been obsessing over Simon and Baz because you guys asked me to be on this podcast. And even though I have listened to Carry On countless times, and like, if you're listening to this, I assume that you've read the book. So, you know, like chapter 61 through 69, I have literally listened to countless times because anytime <laughs> in like a stressful situation, I'm like, I will be listening to these very feelings chapters in my headphones. If anybody needs me, tap me on the shoulder because I am tapping out of this situation. So, uh, yes, but I did a full reread of both books this week. Excellent. So my life has been Simon and Baz and it's been great. Yeah. Like, thank you so much for... <laughs> Making me put away everything or else. Like a debate happened, I think. I don't know. It's all magic. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Doesn't all matter. The time over here. Yeah, I feel similar because I've this is going to be a problem for me going forward with all of these books, which most of them that we're gonna be covering I have read before, but I like want to reread them again, obviously, if we're gonna discuss them. And I felt very similarly this week. I was just like, Okay, like I'm just gonna spend some time with my friends, Simon and Baz. When I wasn't doing that this week, I guess my current obsession which is like a 2012 obsession really is watching the mini project again for the first time which I did watch when it was on it's my first rewatch of it in a long time and the first couple seasons are just really really funny and great and I've plowed through an alarming amount of it in the last week or so um and it's just been bringing me a lot of joy so that I guess is my obsession this week that's when I've thought about starting because um Christmasina in Birds of Prey made me be obsessed with him he's great on that and I know that he's like different in Mindy Project but like it's still him (laughs) yeah he's like he's he's very like much a curmudgeon and it's kind of fun to see him ultimately like move away from that but then they make some choices with him in later seasons which is kind of I fell off a little bit when I was Mm -hmm. airing in real time so I'll be interested to see what my thoughts are on it this time around but in the first couple seasons he's Chef's kiss. That was me oh, making so a chef's good, kiss yeah. in case you didn't, you couldn't, you couldn't see it, but I did it um, and made that gesture. He was perfect in those early seasons. Well, guys, should we dive in? Who yeah. do it. Should I read the summary? I'll read the summary. Yeah, you read the summary. Um, so this is kind of long, but again, we want to start every week with a full summary of the book. Um, so in case anyone hasn't read it in a while or hasn't read it at all and just wants to listen along, kind of go through everything here. We're going to try to talk about Carry On first and then Wayward Son because Carry On was its own thing for four years, and it wasn't really clear that she was going to write a sequel to it until she kind of did. Um, and so Wayward Son kind of flips a lot of things on its head, so I think it'd be interesting to talk about just Carry On to start. So here is what happens in Carry On by Rainbow Rowell. Simon Snow, an orphan, has immense magical power, greater than anyone else, and as such, he is presumed to be the one to fulfill a prophecy and save the world from the insidious humdrum, a magical force who leaves dead spots where magic no longer works all throughout England. The problem? Simon is terrible at controlling his magic, something his roommate, nemesis, and presumed vampire, Baz Pitch, loves to remind him of. As Simon returns to the Watford School of Magics for his eighth and final year, Baz is missing, and while he's away, the ghost of Baz's mother 
mother appears in their room telling Simon to avenge her murder by vampires and giving him a clue to get him started. Baz, who has been kidnapped by numpties, ultimately returns to school, and he and Simon reach a tentative truce as Simon promises to help Baz figure out who killed Baz's mother. As Baz, Simon, and Simon's best friend Penny look further into Baz's mother's death, they come to an important realization about the humdrum and Simon. Every time the humdrum attacks and creates a dead spot corresponds with a date when Simon went off and lost control of his magic. Simon's expulsion of magic on those dates doesn't come from within. He's accidentally taking magic from other spaces. The group learns that the mage, Simon's father figure slash mentor, actually hired the vampires to scare off Baz's mother, who is against the mage politically, resulting in her death and Baz being turned into a vampire. The mage also orchestrated ma- Baz's kidnapping at the beginning of the book, fearing that his mother's spirit would return and tell Baz more about her death. When they confront the mage, he tries to convince Simon to give the mage his power to defeat the humdrum, but Simon instead gives all his magic to the humdrum to fill the holes his magic had left behind for years. In the process, Simon loses all his magic. He also accidentally kills the mage. In alternating POV chapters, the readers learn that Simon is actually the son of the mage and a girl named Lucy Salisbury. The mage convinced Lucy to have a child with him and performed a ritual to ensure that the child would be the prophesied greatest mage. Lucy dies shortly after Simon's birth. The book ends without Simon knowing the truth of his parentage. Most importantly, through the book, we learn that Baz has long been in love with Simon, and eventually Simon begins to realize that while he thought he hated Baz, he may have actually liked him all along too. At the end of the novel, Simon is without magic, but he and Baz are happy together. And that's Carry On. So yeah, a lot of a lot of things happen in, in Carry On, and it's it's definitely, I think, one of the places to start in our discussion of this is how it takes a chosen one narrative, very, very similar to Harry Potter and kind of plays with some of the expectations of what we think is typical in those stories. I think first, I guess a good place to start with that is the fact that Simon is like kind of a mess. Love him. <laughs> Bless this little angel baby, but he, his, he has no control over his magic. It's very hit or miss when he's able to use it. Um, I think that is, is something that's really interesting. It makes him really relatable. Yeah. Um, It's really like overkill when he does use it. It's either ineffective or it's too much. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the fact that he struggles with it so much, but like never gives up is something that makes him really endearing, but it's also kind of problematic because he, he knows that he is the, the chosen one, essentially, um, which makes it very different than, again, Harry Potter, who, you know, he doesn't find out till towards the end of the series that he has to be the one to kill Voldemort. Simon knows it from the time he's 11 years old. So he is constantly working towards that goal, even though he maybe should not be the one to be focusing on that goal, I guess. Well, because- one of the first things that we learn about like Simon's, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? Like one of the first things we learn about Simon's view of himself is that he's the mage's blade. So like we meet this kid, he's like 17 or 18 because you find out at the end of the book that he doesn't even know when his birthday is. 
I know, poor thing. Like, and no one's day to celebrate him, like this poor child. But um, yeah, like one of the first things he says about himself is that, you know, he's the mage's blade. So all of this violence and all of this, like using his magic to do combat just feels normal to him. And it's like really sad, but also it's better for him that way, I think, because we meet him and like he is a happy kid. And he's naive in a way that allows him to like, say and do things that I don't think a well-adjusted person would be able to do, which is, like, really sad for Simon, but I do think it's better than him, like, suffering through an identity crisis, like, his entire childhood. Well, he feels, like, purposeful for it. Like, he kind of Mm -hmm. knows he's being used and he's resigned himself that he is the mage's blade. He's essentially just a weapon to be honed and sharpened, but it gives him purpose in a life that has been, you know, shuffling between school and various group homes for, you know, orphans. Yeah. But in some ways too, I wonder how much it stunts him, particularly the knowledge from such an early age that he is destined for this path. He's not given a chance to even pretend to think he is in any way a normal kid, even though he has this intense magic that's so much more than anyone else. He is, he is, he can't just be a kid who's like learning and growing as his peers are. He's, as Melissa said, he's the mage's blade. He's being honed for this very specific purpose. And I think that that allows, it doesn't allow him much of a sense of development of who who he is beyond that identity, which comes into play more in, in the second book. But I think even in, in this book, he, he just has such a one track mind as mm-hmm. to, he's always going to be the hero. He's always just going to dive into, uh, to danger. And I, I think it's interesting because rather than that, just being like a bravery thing, which again, in, in Harry Potter, that seems to be the case, right? You know, he's just, he just who he is, but Simon has been, made into that yeah Um, it doesn't matter if he's brave because that's what he does like he doesn't even believe that he's going to live through it so it like he never thinks that he needs to like be building up any other like saying like personality seems too small for what I mean but there's no need for Simon to like build up any of the other parts of his life because he truly does not believe that he's going to live to see those things Anyway. Well, yeah, when any, anytime anybody thinks about the future, like, you know, Penny will be making plans for, you know, oh, after school, what are we doing? And he's just kind of, it's a non-issue for him. He doesn't even like to think about mm-hmm. it. He doesn't expect himself to live through it. Yeah. And that's, that's so much to put on a kid. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's hard because in some ways, you know, the mage sucks. Like, we'll talk about the mage, but in some ways it's like kind of good that he that Simon knows what's yeah I was gonna say there's a there's a really interesting kind of like line drawn between like say Dumbledore and Harry Potter and the mage here because uh you know they both have their faults very very extreme faults but um Dumbledore kept Harry's whole you know prophecy from him for most of the entire series whereas the mage he's a lot colder so he's just kind of like, oh, yeah, so this is what you're for. This is what's going to happen to you. So 
but you know, it doesn't allow him to have any, to, to make any plans or to think about life outside of what purpose the mage has given him. So I had this thought while we were talking about this, that it's not just Simon that doesn't feel the need or feel like he can make plans outside of the singular purpose. It's every kid that we actually meet in the world of mages. Not Penny as much, although, like, Penny believes that she, like, is going to marry Micah, they're going to settle down, she's going to do whatever, and that, you know, she knows what that path is to, like, you know, marry a mage and continue on in the world of mages. Agatha knows that, like, she has to marry someone who's more powerful than she is because that's what her family wants, and, like, Simon tells us that, you know, Agatha wants to get married after school and live in the country, and, like, they mention that if you don't meet your magical spouse at Wofford, like you'll end up alone magically. So it's like every kid in the world has like a one track mind and like, there's nothing really for them outside of fitting into these slots that were designed for them by like house. Not, I guess I, we don't know for sure, but it's seemingly like how strict the like roles are for different people within the world of mages. I mean, not to even mention Baz Pitch who thinks that his, like life mission is to eventually be killed by Simon. Yeah. And it's a real, that is a really good point. And it, it shows just how like effed up this whole situation uh-huh. is in a way that again, Harry Potter being the best direct comparison, it, 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 it shows way more how effed up that is for, for these kids. And I, I love the commentary about, the idea that if you don't meet your person in school, that you're kind of, um, you're, 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 you're SOL, like you're never going to find the person mm-hmm. you're meant to be with because I think that's one of the the criticisms and, and rightfully so of series like Harry Potter. It's unrealistic that you are going to meet someone at age 11 and then marry that person. Um, and I, that's what I like about the use of, of Agatha in this, in this book, because mm-hmm. she is kind of self-aware of that. It, so I, I felt really bad. I didn't even mention Agatha in the the summary. They're just trying to get through a lot of stuff. But Agatha is Simon's girlfriend, and she's just very typically beautiful, blonde, comes from a a well-established magical family. They've been dating for several years, and there is this expectation that they will end up together. Her family wants it. They accepted Simon. They have him over for holidays and and things like that. Um, But, you know, Agatha doesn't feel like Simon appreciates her in any real way. And it's totally true. He, she says to him at one point, you know, you look at me as I'm not the prize at the end of the story. And that is totally how he thinks of her. Like if I do pull this off and I do defeat the humdrum and I have my, my choice of what to do in life, I'm I'll marry Agatha. Cause that's what I'm expected to do. Um, and she breaks up with him and is like, no, I, I want more. And so I think that's a, one of the earliest examples in the book of, of subverting expectations of their typical to the, the genre is that, you know, this, she's not the prize at the end of it all, you know, happily ever after with the person you're quote unquote meant to be with is not necessarily something that you should be striving for. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, I got those arcs stood out a lot more to me this time around when I was reading because in the beginning, like it's it's so sad how just completely resigned she is to marrying Simon. And she's like, Well, I don't really think about anybody really. Like she's like, I don't really care. So I might as well do this. Like it makes him happy. So and I don't care either way. So 
And yeah, her, the whole idea that she, like all of them are just pawns in this, this scheme, which is not just the world of mages versus the humdrum. There's also this political, you know, undercurrent between the quote unquote old families of which, you know, Baz's family is a part of, and then the mage who has kind of more radical, newer ideas. And all these kids are just a pawn in, in all of that. And the result is, is in Agatha's case, just total apathy for the world of mages. She just has no interest in it. She wants to be, she feels closer to her normal friends um, that live, you know, near her house um, outside of, of Watford. And she just has no interest in engaging with any of it. She's just, a, a, she feels like a side character in, in Simon's story. And it's, it's not. Well, and that's why she latched on so firmly to Lucy's story when she heard it. Um, you know, somebody who supposedly, you know, in this version of the story got away and went off and, you know, went to the, to America and just lived a non-magical normal person life. And that story really stuck with her. Right. So we find out too through the novel that Lucy, um, who it's kind of revealed through alternate POV chapters is, is Simon's mother, but she went to school with like Penny's mom so that people know who she was. And the, we don't know what, they don't know what really happened to her. They think she ran off to California and married a normal and just kind of said F off to the world of mages, which Agatha finds really inspiring. But we really find out that she died and in, in after having Simon, um, which is really sad. But yeah, she is this inspirational figure to Agatha. She represents a way out and that no one else has really been able to accomplish. And that's, that's what Agatha does at the end of the book. She moves to California um, and Starts to live what she thinks. Adopts a dog life. named Lucy. <laughs> yeah. I like that dog. It's the dog that, um, like, Penny and uses Baz to communicate. Steals. Yeah. Like, Baz <laughs> yeah. steals him, and, like, Penny communicates to Baz through this, like, little dog. And rather than returning the dog, they're just like, sure, I got to take the dog to California. Like, <laughs> great. Um, but, yeah, I definitely agree that Agatha on rereads is a much more compelling character than I initially thought because – all these books are told through alternating POV. So you get chapters from Simon's perspective and Baz and, uh, and Penny and Agatha. And then you get Lucy chapters and you don't know at the time, you kind of get a sense that Lucy is, is a, a ghost at this point and she's coming back and trying to tell, tell her story um, during this once in every 20 year occurrence where um, they call it the veil lifts and spirits can come back if they have unfinished business. So she's trying to um, communicate to Simon about what happened in the same way that Baz's mom, is, who was murdered, is coming back to try to tell uh, Baz about what happened to her. And that's another, I think, really interesting part of the story, too, in, in, in subverting you know, some of these expectations. And we talked about a little bit is the difference between the mage and a figure like Dumbledore or Gansolf or anything like that is that he's like a legit like sociopath in trying to attain his goals and it starts at such an early age you find out he is obsessed with the idea of of this prophecy i'll read the prophecy actually because the language of it on reweeds always is very um interesting to me it's 
One will come to end us and one will save us all. Let the greatest power of powers reign. May it save us all. So he's obsessed with trying to figure out who this, this one is going to be. And he thinks that he can basically like summon him or create him. So he like just totally coerces Lucy into being with him and having a child with him, which kills her and drains her of her magic. So that's, you know, step one, terrible. Step two, he murders Baz's mom because she's getting too close to like, up, you know, upheaving the system that he's trying to set into place. And then he has this son who he knows is his son and does not approach him for the first 11 years of his life, leaves him in care homes. And then when he does bring him to school, he basically pays him no mind other than to make him this weapon. So basically here on Act Your Age, our reigning motto, I think, could be fuck the mage. Fuck the mage. Yeah. Fuck him so hard. <laughs> we, the maid sucks. Yeah. And I think it is a really interesting commentary about how in a lot of these stories, there's always a figure who is so willing to push the chosen one forward to the the goal that they have to to kind of eradicate this force of evil that threatens the whole world. And that's so it's so hard. And, and, and I think at the core of all of that, there has to be some like level of lack of care and concern for the one that they're pushing forward. But like the, so the mage is kind of like a, an embodiment of that and an extreme example of that. And I, I kind of like that because I, I, I do think all these people, you know, you have to be a little callous to push someone towards those things. I think um, the mage makes for a really interesting villain because, well, I think, what makes any good villain is um, kind of understandable motives. Like their motives need to be rooted in something real. And the mage, like he was right about a lot of things regarding the the elitism within the magical community and not allowing, you know, uh, not allowing other magical creatures into the or school. Or like even lower powered. Right. And, and the classism, the classism and, and stuff within within the magical community like it was wrong and he was right to fight against that but he became such a radical that was blinded by his own vanity that he made this prophecy like essentially a self-fulfilling one where he made it happen Mm -hmm. to to the detriment of of literally everything and everyone else yeah i kind of feel like sometimes i get it into my mind and i feel like this prophecy is actually about the mage interesting because okay so always going back to harry potter i guess um but it's inevitable you know, with this book that that prophecy ends up being self-fulfilling kind of because it could have been two babies or picked one and so thus harry is the chosen one rather than neville so the language of this says like one will come to end us and one will save us all it doesn't specify that those two are different people and it's like, yeah, you can interpret that and say, okay, they're both Simon, except for like the mage came to end like the magical political structure as it was. Um, and he thought that that would be like saving magic as well. And he ends up being the one that creates Simon, which actually creates the hundrum. And then like, so if, if the one to save us all is referring to Simon, then the mage made him too. Like he, 
did all these rituals. Like, I just don't know what this means. And like, that's a really good point. That's really good. I always thought it was Simon too. You've, you're convincing me. Sometimes if, I think if, if you would just ignore these prophecies, like maybe they would never happen. (laughs) I mean, isn't that the nature of prophecies? Yeah. Like you know them. And so you make them happen. Like just ignore them. Right. And that's what I think is ultimately so brilliant about Simon is the hero, but he's also the big bad. Like he Mm -hmm. is the humdrum. They're in, in, they're, one in the same. Um, and I think that that is such a good commentary on exactly that, that like it, it, it's the ultimate self-fulfilling prophecy because it's a, it's a, a circular like echo chamber, like without Simon, there's no humdrum without the humdrum. There's no Simon. It's, it's, it's with the mage, without the mage, there's no, exactly. You've got me convinced on the prophecy. I always thought yeah. of Simon. <laughs> I like this reading of it. Um, and um I, so interesting. I've been listening to a carry on reread podcast called Escape is S Gay from, from Reality, which Ooh. that was a, it's really great. That's like a a play on words that is read better than it is spoken by me. Much um, like the name of this podcast, by the way. They were <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They were talking about how when Mage comes to Simon at the beginning of the book wanting him to leave school for his safety, like that's really to hide him from Lucy coming, right? Because so we know we know that I when they said that I was like holy shit, and then when I reread the book after I heard them say that, like the mage is acting very manic in that scene. So I'm like, yeah, yeah you have some real big secret keeping energy going on here, sir. That makes so much sense, and he like I mean he's not going to like have numpties kidnap Simon because he needs Simon in case the humdrum comes. And Simon would go off. Right, right. Yeah, totally good point. Yeah. R.I.P. So, numpties. Yeah. Like, he can't overpower Simon. He has to convince Simon with his words. But at that point, Simon is like, no, I, for one, where the fuck is Baz? I need, wait, do we curse on this podcast? <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah. He's so he's so obsessed with where he's Baz like, is. He's like, I can't leave whole... this room unless Baz comes back. I was <laughs> like, laughing through reading the whole, like, for, like, before Baz shows back up is, like, every other thought of Simon's is, where's Baz? Where's Baz? Like, asking teachers, asking Baz's yeah. friends. Like, come on, dude. You're showing, yeah. <laughs> you're showing, you're showing your, your cards here. Yeah. Um, this is what I was saying though. Simon doesn't, Simon is too precious to think like, he has no idea the, why he even wants to find Baz. He just like misses him. He wants right. him in the room. Like he needs to know where his little like villain boy is. And he doesn't even care. He's not embarrassed about that at all. Like, I just love how like naive and pure he is. Yeah. Like, yeah he's done like some things that are bad like he had to slay a dragon which they repeat and repeat and repeat in this book about how like how that's like really fucked up to do and he's like well i didn't know like right you know um but so like this man who can slay a dragon doesn't realize that like you shouldn't go to your enemy's friends and be like where is he (laughs) i need him back (laughs) listen i too would miss looking at baz yeah right asking everybody where he was yeah if if Levi was a challenge last week in terms of not gushing over him, like Baz is a whole other level for us, but we're doing pretty good so, so far. But I, <laughs> I do think it, again, circles back to the, this idea that Simon has such a one-track mind and he's so just been honed in on this one process that he can't even, again, look at other feelings as meaning any anything else. Um, and, you know, we talked, I talked a little bit about this in this, the summary, but you know, Baz and and Simon have been uh, kind of focused against each other because, in addition to this, you know, humdrum issue, there's this political issue that is still um, ongoing between the mage who wants more open access to magic, and then these old families of which Baz is a part that 
want to keep it more closed off to, to people. Um, so they have, you know, this other, this other layer of tension going on and they have just been at each other's throats for, for so long. And it's a really interesting, uh, commentary about how both of them then find their way to like a middle ground in terms of like thinking of what is is best and this is all really complicated by the fact that Baz is a vampire which is totally ostracized by the the magic community his family is keeping a secret it's not so secret to Simon who is low-key obsessed with him for years and stalks his every movement and notices everything about him he goes to his sports practices like this is not (laughs) normal behavior there's a line when they go to the vampire den there's this line when like Baz walks up the stairs and Simon says like one last snarky thing Nako and Simon is like Baz is waiting at the top of the stairs like I'm his best friend I'm like aren't you though like you (laughs) are with him 24 7 you guys live together you guys have like all these memories all these like they're not inside jokes when they hate each other but like once they are friends again they're inside jokes like that time Baz tried to kill Simon with a chimera and the time that Simon tried to get back at Baz by putting like a mountain cat in their own room and he's like oh oops <laughs> like I also live here like you guys are best friends like, yeah not anybody. It's, it's manifesting in a different way I actually I want to talk about that scene though about the vampires and how vampires are treated in this novel because I think it is an interesting way to look at like some of the class and like prejudice issues that these, these books are bringing up. We talked briefly about Nico again, someone else who didn't make the summary. So much happens in these books, but I love Nico. Yeah. So at Watford, one of the only like good adult figures that Simon has in his life is um, a woman named Ebb, who is a goat herd on the premises. We find out that her, Uh, She had a twin brother named Nicodemus, Nico, who decided like he wanted to live forever. And so he decides to willingly become a vampire. So when, when Natasha Grimpich, Baz's mom, reappears into, uh, as a spirit to try to like have her death be eventually, the the hint that she gives Simon is to go find Nico. Um, So they eventually do, do find him. Um, But I think he is like in, in this world, like vampires are like underground. They like live, they like hang out in very seedy, like hidden bars. Um, So Baz has no reference point for what it means to be a, a vampire. And it, it's, it's, it really is, just kind of an allegory of like how people, you know, ostracize and push out people because Baz is, it's very clear, like just because you're a vampire doesn't mean you're evil. You're going to kill people. Baz does not touch humans. He like kills animals to survive because he has to, but you know, it's possible to be a magician and a vampire and be, be good. And I think that that's, you know, something that is, is really helpful and, and, and interesting. And I want more of that going forward. I want more of Nicodemus going forward we're gonna get more me too yeah so and we'll talk about wayward son but that takes the gang to america so a lot of these side characters are not there anymore including nicodemus so you're not you're not talking about them but hopefully we'll get more about of them eventually but i think that that is and you you talked about this a little bit tasia like the idea of this like the mage's idea is not being so far off base but he's just so radical and i think that that is it? Is there, is there, I think that's like a good commentary on like one of the criticisms of Harry Potter is that the magical world is so isolated and insulated, and they say that it's because they need to protect themselves. But really, like obviously, they treat Muggles horribly. It's clear that like keeping things separate is is 
is not just about safety. It's, it's coded for, for prejudice of people who are different. And so I'm interested in seeing how this world kind of starts to break apart those boundaries. Sorry, I'm, also um, I'm not the, I'm not the, uh, the most qualified to like say this next thing that I'm going to say anyway, but I think that there's probably a lot in here, um, using the mage as like a critique of liberalism <laughs> because he like wants to open up the world of mages. Um, but he is still like, he makes this deal with the vampires because he has them kill Natasha, but the deal is that he'll let them live. The deal is not that he will welcome them into the world of mages, even though they're undead, they live on blood. Like obviously there's some magic going on even, and we find out more about, I think we find out even more about how like magic works in Wayward Son, but it's like the mage has all these great ideas, but he's still like the shittiest person and he's still doing this just to like amass personal power. And I think like, especially right now, you can see those parallels with like, uh, we'll just call them the Democrats here in America. Like, yeah, that's really you're still leaving thing. people out. Like, you're still ostracizing people. You're still just collecting power for yourself. Yeah. And it's like bullshit that you want to open up the world of mages. You just want to do that so you can have more people propping you up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Can we just briefly talk to, uh, just to circle back, every time we talk about the mage, my blood boils. But so the fact, like, we need to talk about the fact of his death and how he dies. Because, so we didn't talk about how the spells work in this world, but they are tied to language. So it's use of common phrases and song lyrics. It, you say them with magic behind them and it uh, happen and that is what makes like magic happen. Um, so a, a lot of in the book, like all the spells are bolded and italicized and you can tell like they're common phrases that we know about. So at the end of this book, the mage is like threatening Simon he wants to take his magic to try to use it to like turn the the humdrum back against you know turn turn the humdrum into itself and and have it not suck magic anymore and Simon gives all his magic to the humdrum and the mage is still coming after Simon and Simon's telling him to stop stop and uh penny cast Simon says so basically that is then compels whoever it's cast on to do what Simon says and Simon says and I like cry stop it stop hurting me and the mage falls dead because literally the only way that the mage can stop hurting Simon is if he is dead like yeah oh that's how deep his intentions were to to hurt Simon it makes me so so upset fuck the mage fuck the mage I don't like I don't even think the mage thought he was hurting Simon. Like I, this is, I'm not saying like, this is an excuse. I'm saying like, this is how fucked up this person was that like, this is your actual son. Like he had to make Simon his heir so that Simon could go to Watford. He's your real heir. Like it's your real son. You're a fucking psychopath. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know if he's saying like, when he says like, stop hurting me and the mage dies. Like, I just think that, so much damage has been done that like even if even if the mage wasn't doing anything to simon the simple fact of him existing after everything he's done to simon is too much like yeah 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 so is there any other like any other big things we want to talk about carry on because you know while i i love this book a lot and it does challenge some 
preconceived notions of what like a chosen one story should be. But what I think makes this series like really interesting is how Wayward Son takes all of that and goes beyond it and, mm-hmm. and deals with themes that go go beyond that. So is there is there really any anything else like super big on, on Carrie on before we t- turn to Wayward Son? No? Yeah. I'm ready. I think so. How Carry On ends, and I, I said this above, is that you know if there's an epilogue and it's after graduation, and Simon and Baz are together, and Simon has moved into a flat with Penny, and they're about to start university, and Simon says he's getting therapy, um, but you know it's generally like a very happy ending, which is ultimate always a criticism, sometimes a criticism of like how Harry Potter ended, like the whole all is well is that's just not reality and you get a little bit of it like that that Simon talks about how he's going to therapy he doesn't have magic he's trying to like figure out who he is but he thinks he's going to be okay because he has Simon or he has uh Baz and and Penny um but that ends on a pretty happy note um but then Wayward Son flips all that on its head it was not the sequel that anyone was expecting um Carry On is like a warm hug uh it's so comforting I think that's why we go back and we listen to it so often but Wayward Son just like goes in another direction it's unrelenting just yeah pain fest but it makes a lot of sense because like you said the always well at the end of Harry Potter makes you know zero sense in reality where these kids would be just traumatized right. forever would be right. in for years and years and years of therapy yeah. and wayward son is the exploration of that like yeah. what happens when the chosen one is done yeah and the big the big bad or whatever is defeated but then you have all of the internal damage that has been done to deal yeah. with should i read the uh wayward son summary yeah do it okay and then we'll go into it It's a year after the conclusion of Carry On, and Simon Snow won't get off the couch. He stopped going to school, he's drinking a lot, and he has pulled almost completely away from Penny and Baz. In a desperate attempt to bring Simon back to himself, Penny suggests they fulfill a long-held dream of theirs, a road trip across America. First stop, Chicago, where Penny goes to see her longtime, long-distance boyfriend, Micah, only to find out he has already dumped her several times. From there, the trio sets off towards San Diego in order to see Agatha. Along the way, they fight vampires at a Renaissance fair in Nebraska, then find themselves stuck in a quiet zone after they're cornered by a group of dangerous, magical beings. With the help of a curious normal named Shepard, they escape, only to find out that Agatha has been kidnapped by a group of vampires called Now Next, who are attempting to steal magic from magicians. Unsure of how to find out where these vampires are, Shepard takes them to Las Vegas, the vampire capital of the United States. In an effort to find out where Agatha might be, Baz meets with the vampire king, Lamb, who tells them or tells him all about how vampires live in the open in Las Vegas. Even though the old vampires are at odds with Now Next, Lamb agrees to take the group to meet with Now Next in order to find Agatha. Once they get there, Lamb betrays them, leading them into a dead spot without magic and offering up Penny and Simon to the Now Next as part of a treaty that requires the old vampires to turn over magicians to the Now Next group. A massive fight ensues, but Agatha, who can cast flames without her wand and without speaking, saves the day as she and Penny summon magic from a nearby gathering of normals. Lamb escapes the melee, but the now next vampires are killed, and the group prepares to head home to England. Simon and Baz talk on the beach, and Simon decides that he no longer belongs in the world of mages, urging Baz to stay in Vegas, where he can be with people who understand him. Baz tries to fight him on this, but they are interrupted by Penny, who runs onto the beach and exclaims, there's trouble at Watford, we have to go home now. And that's how that book ends. How dare you? 
I think we, we all read when this book came out, we all read it around the same time. And I think Melissa, you finished first. And I remember you gave it to me like two yeah, weeks early. I remember you DMing like the, um, the group chat and being like, listen, you guys, <laughs> this is, this book is not going to go how you, how you really want it to go. Like yourself. fair warning. Yeah. So yeah, like four years between carry on and wayward son. And I think, you know, during that time, a lot of people who had read carry on, you know, just really loved like the comforting aspects of it. They love Simon and Baz's relationship. It's very swoon worthy, which we'll talk about some of that stuff towards the end of the podcast, but it really just, we thought we're getting more of Simon Baz's story. And so after the initial shock wore off though, about Simon being in such a bad place, he and Baz are in a terrible place in terms of their relationship with this story. After the, the shock of it wore off and the cliffhanger of an ending wore off I, I have come to appreciate how I how brilliant I think what Rainbow has done in this book is I love these books I'm so glad to reread Wayward Son because I had still only read it the one time and I literally picked it up from the bookstore and I felt like someone was going to come into my house and take it from me because it wasn't supposed to be released yet so I sat and I just read it in one sitting um and I remember like I was so annoyed when Shepard finally got a chapter like I had forgotten that there's like eight different POVs in Carry On because I was like you're not even mine get out of here like <laughs> we don't, we don't, you don't know even you go here only one Simon <laughs> and Baz but then on the second reread I'm like Shepard is an amazing character I love him paired with Penny like I think that's so good for her. Um, and so, so much of Wayward Son is like less jarring. And I wasn't like frantically flipping through the pages, like looking for softness. So it's like, Graham. I think Carry On is like really, really good on reread as well because of like the Lucy mystery. Once you know everything about it, when you're rereading those passages, there's just like so much there. But um, the Wayward Son reread, reread, excuse me, there's not as much to like figure out the second time, but there's much more of like, this is not fine, but yeah, it feels still good to like soak into it more than like Wayward Son is really funny because it's like this unrelenting pain fest set in like a like a fun road trip AU where you're like, and it is, it's really <laughs> I'm hurting, funny. but this is really fun. Like, yeah, and it is really fun. Like, the book is very funny, even though all so of the funny. emotions are just like sad. Penny is a fucking wreck, Baz is profoundly suffering like Simon's actually having a great time but it's just because like he hasn't been outside in like eight months or whatever <laughs> like yeah yeah and I and it, it does yeah it's exi- that's why I love this book so much because it is such a good balance it's it's really teaching important lessons to I think the who this book is these books are directed at which are young teens but I think it is, again, lessons that are transferable to anyone's life because after you go through some like horrible traumatic event, life is not going to be be normal. And she does it in such a way that like, yeah, there's a lot of heartache in this book, particularly when it comes to Simon and Baz who are just like not communicating and it's really hard to read. But there is a lot of humor. There is this fun trip that they're going on. There's still a lot of danger and a lot of um, adventures that they're going on. Um, but it's also, I think, teaching this really important lesson. I think it starts literally from the first page. You open the book and the uh, the first chapter is titled Epilogue, which normally comes at the end of a book. Um, I think it's so clever. She frames it as this is the epilogue to, to Simon's story from Carry On. This is what happens after you, quote unquote, should be getting the happy happily ever after. 
but that's not the reality. All is well that how Harry Potter ends is not what would happen. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the, the best themes of this book is how trauma affects you and how losing your identity and grappling with your identity is something that affects you. And that's definitely what Simon's going through. And I just want to say, like, for people listening, like, it doesn't even have to be, like, this level of trauma. Like, I feel like in 2020, we're all going through some trauma. So if you're having, if you're finding yourself with some intimacy issues, like, that's probably very normal. And maybe you can read Rayward Sun and that will be comforting. Or maybe it would be, like, looking in the mirror and that would be terrible. But (laughs) either way, it's very normal and we're all going to be fine. We're going to try really hard. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I think that's something we, like, want to talk about here. So, like, you know, Simon's how he is handling all this is manifesting itself in several different ways, right? So like he's not engaging with the outside world anymore. He's not going to school. He's just like staying home. He's just massively depressed and it's really hard to see. But then he also is is pulling away from Baz, not just on a communication level. Um, obviously these two stupid boys who I love dearly have never communicated really well. That's why it took them their entire eight years of school to finally realize what they meant to each other. But they're not communicating about any of the issues that they have here. And But then also Simon is struggling with, intimacy emotional and physical intimacy with Baz in this book which is really interesting to see because I think it's done so well at one point Simon talks about how there's a difference from when Baz kisses him versus when he kisses Baz and it's he feels much more comfortable when he is in control and he's the one who gets to set the rules and I find that so relatable because every time that I feel something like if I'm stressed or I'm anxious, like I don't want anyone to like come near me. (laughs) I just feel safest in my own space. And so I think he's really struggling with that with Baz and he doesn't know how to express it. And that's, it's, it's rings so true. Yeah. They need to have a a whole ass conversation because my issue with the intimacy thing, it's because from Baz, it's from Baz's perspective that I feel like this is really harmful because. Oh Yeah what Baz is seeing is not that like he obviously understands that Simon is going through some shit like and he is very understanding about all of that but from his perspective he tries to kiss Baz or Simon and Simon pulls away and kind of freaks out but then Simon will occasionally like in little bursts of happiness go and and initiate physical contact with Baz this has to be so confusing and like, I feel like, I mean, how could that not affect your your self-esteem? How could you not? And like Baz notices that Simon gets uncomfortable when people notice him like holding hands in public and stuff. So I think from Baz's perspective, this feels like a gay panic thing. And from Simon's perspective, yeah, he's having just kind of general anxieties and intimacy issues, which is totally understandable. Yeah but they're not talking about it. So Baz feels, I feel like for Baz, it is coming across as like a, like a regret of the relationship or or a sexual confusion kind of thing. Yeah. That's interesting. Baz does this thing in Wayward Son and I had to like put my head down because he's like, he's talking about Simon and how much Simon's struggling, like how much they're struggling. And he's like, well, I've loved him through worse. And I'm like, Baz. Yeah. Like, and because it's so hard, because, like, what are you going to say? Like, Simon can't at the moment, like, give Baz what Baz needs. And so 
Baz is just like alone and he's like well I've loved Simon like I love Simon through worse things but it's like you have to love yourself too Baz yeah because it's like where's the line like because like you said like this is obviously damaging to Baz at what point do you stop doing it yeah and that's why I think Baz does feel so um compelled by Lamb when they go to Vegas and he meets another vampire because Baz has that own self self-hatred and in terms of he is a vampire he's in hiding on that he's he's not necessarily he's way more open about his sexuality like that is not the 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 problem for Baz Pitch the problem for Baz Pitch a lot of times is the fact that he's this vampire and his family knows but it's like a a coded secret they don't talk about and he goes and he meets this guy who's just it's not like vampires are totally out in the open but they have a very symbiotic system in place where they're living in cooperation with each other and they've figured out how to you know feed off of humans without killing them or turning them into vampires and it's just it blows his mind that he could be he doesn't have to live and be totally ostracized. So he's going through that, which is a very important um, allegory for anyone's journey of self-discovery. And he is starting to discover more about himself while Simon's identity of who he felt he was his entire life, this chosen one, this hero, that is just crumbling and crumbling and crumbling. He's not that person anymore. So I think at one point Simon um, talks about how like, you know, Simon used to love wearing a uniform because it like gave him a sense of belonging and it was like easy and it was a, like, a way for him to uh, just fit in. But then once they leave school, it's like Baz was sporting for this his whole life. He just keeps his, his fashion game is upped and he says something like Baz is, is, is growing up and out like and I'm crumbling inward. And it's so, it's so hard and those are both very valid paths that they're on, but it's leading them away from each other. And it's really, it's really hard to see. It hurts. It does hurt. But again, again, like this is, again, we we talked about, you know, this is, a lot of these themes do feel very relevant to anyone in 2020. Mm -hmm. We're all being faced with, you know, different, we had to readjust our notions of like who we are and how we fit in this world when we're all like stuck in our houses all the time. But I think it is also really important to, for, for kids who read these books to show that like you like aren't going to, just because you find someone you love doesn't mean it's going to be easy. doesn't mean you aren't going to have problems that you're going to have to work through individually and then ultimately together. Um, And they're, they're kind of set on that path in this book. Maybe like they are starting to get some of the tools that they need to uh, work towards being their best selves so they can be their best selves together, but they're not there yet at the end. And that's what makes the ending of this book particularly hard. And then the ending is a prologue. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So the very last chapter is she starts with an epilogue and she ends with the last chapter being called prologue. So this is the beginning of the rest of their story. I feel very hopeful for them um, towards the end of, of this. You know, there are moments in this book, like you said, uh, Tisha, where Simon in like moments of happiness feels like he is able to be with Baz and, and, and be into Baz again and communicate with Baz both physically and emotionally, but he, um, it's still very much tied to moments where he gets to be the hero. Um, like, so after the Renaissance fair where they like see these vampires who are going to like kill these normals at the Renaissance fair and they like all go into action and they fight them and they kill all these vampires. Simon's like 
free, like just like senselessly turned on by Baz and like pins him against the car. And it's like, oh my God, you were so hot. Like he, I got to see you fight without picking a fight with you. Yeah. 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 But he's all hyped up on his own heroism, you know, because that's the only way he ever feels good about himself. So I, and I don't really see that we ever, we get glimpses in this book of moments where Simon feels better about himself that, that aren't tied to that. And it's particularly when he is outside and he's flying. He's still, so at the end of uh, Carry On, he is left with wings and a tail because he tried to um, turn, turn, do you think turn himself to a dragon? Um, How have we not mentioned that until right now? I don't know. <laughs> Simon has <laughs> wings and a tail. Simon has wings. Yeah. Um, but, I think probably because we just assume that people listening to this have already read the books and it's yeah. like so serious yeah well it, it's it's kind of like a silly plot thing in some ways like okay this guy's got wings and tail whatever we're in a magical world it doesn't really matter but it does matter because it's an additional hindrance on simon he can't like go out into the world because he has appendages that like people are blocking into so or running into so penny finds a way to like spell them like basically invisible but when he is able to like on these on these massive stretches of the road trip where they're just like in empty spots and he can just fly that's like when he feels best and he like that's when he has that beautiful moment with Baz where he like makes Baz come lay in the back of this pickup truck with them because Simon's been outside and flying and seeing all the stars and he's like I want you to see this with me it, that is the closest I think we get to Simon feeling better about himself without it being connected to him like basically saving the day and killing someone to like save his friends so it's there he has the he's starting to learn a little bit about how to be himself and he needs like some space to to do that and i don't know how he's gonna get that back in england honestly but well with whatever drama is going down over there like it doesn't feel like there's I think it's interesting that she said that she was like Baz something's going on at Watford like does that mean that whatever's going on at Watford is more relevant to Baz than it would be to Simon or is she doing that because Baz never thought of that magic but like Penny and Simon have been doing rescue missions and emergencies like their whole lives I just think it's so so like and I even though even though Simon doesn't have magic we've never seen Penny like not still go to him that's for whatever but yeah she does immediately like shout at baz but then like towards the end you know it says penny's penny's running towards us she's out of breath we we this is from baz's pov we both stand when we see the look on her face i catch her by the shoulders what what is it her brown eyes are lit with horror baz their struggle walker we have to go home now yeah i mean she is talking yeah is at that point he's looking right at her but the shout that interrupts them is her yelling bad. So that's a really mm. interesting, interesting point. Well, and we didn't talk about this either, but you know, um, at the end of carry on, uh, the uh, events with like the mage dying and Simon defeating the humdrum happens like in the fall semester. Mm-hmm. And Simon obviously doesn't go back to school because he doesn't have magic anymore. Oh, yeah. So maybe that's why. Penny um, doesn't go back to school because they just decide to let her, like eighth year has always been optional um and she has like top marks and she's like i'm not gonna go back baz decides to go back but then penny's mom is the headmaster now after the mage has effed off forever praise be um so maybe that has something to do with it but i also like the idea that she 
you know, she and Baz are very powerful magicians. They're very good magicians. They were both top of their class, like constantly vying for that. Um, so I think that that's something that is, is, is really interesting. So one of the other things that I think is really interesting in this book is how Agatha and Penny kind of really come into their own more. Agatha is, as we talked about, like in the initial read of Carry On, you don't like her. She's kind of a pill. She's not into being part of this world anymore. So she moves to California inspired by this like false narrative surrounding Lucy. Um, and she's, doing much better she seems much happier um but then she gets involved with this now next group which is very like cult like uh, but i love like ultimately some of the lessons you like learn from that is like she is told by this guy who's in charge of now next that like how special she is and and she wants to hear that because she's never heard that before she was just a token in Simon's she's so story. resistant to it too she's yeah like so, i love like I'm sure Agatha had personality during her time at Watford, but we don't get as much of it in Carry On as we do in Wayward Son. And I love when she's like, well, I know what you, when they say special, I know that they just mean blonde. Like she's so unwilling to uh, like take this at face value. And honestly, good for her because they're trying to steal her magic. Yeah, they are trying to steal her. You can't trust white yeah. boy's name Brayden yeah I'm sorry <laughs> well, I loved you when he says his name is Brayden she's like of course it is <laughs> like, that's a made-up name <laughs> oh I love it because it seems like when you're reading Carrie on like it's hard to get into Agatha as a character really see a lot of personality in her because like as we've talked about she was just so completely over the entire magical world and how she was just kind of meant to be prettied up and marry the dude who saved the day and like for very understandable reasons. She's just like, oh, fuck this entire place. Fuck all of you. I don't care. And so it's hard to like get into her because when we're reading Carry On, we're so excited to be there. We're so excited to be in the magical world. And she's somebody that's just like, nah, like, nah, I don't care. Yeah. So when she goes out to California and she really starts developing herself, like she has, she's the same person. She has the same personality, but now it's in a different context and it's more fun. Yeah. And then she saves the day and it is such a great moment. So we find out. So when she goes to California, she leaves her wand at home in England. She's like, I I am done with the world of mages, but like she gets to California and she can still cast magic without her wand. Like just under her breath, she can summon flames. She She does wandless magic. Yeah. That's a big deal. uh, If these listeners read Harry Potter fan fiction, but that is like the coolest shit ever when people can do (laughs) wildest magic. Um, I also love that she says like, and this is like British, sorry, but she says like, oh, I keep an emergency bag in my purse. When I used to smoke cigarettes, I always had like one floater cigarette in all my bag. Safety sick, it's a thing. Shout out Agatha, you are great. (laughs) (laughs) Although that like that is what gets her in trouble in this book because she does cast. Wandless magic, and she lights her cigarette, and Brayden, fucking Brayden, sees it and realizes that she has magic, and then he tries to, like, steal it from her. But then, at the end, she saves the day, because, like, during this big fight between the Now Next vampires and and Lamb's vampires, she and Penny are, like, in the car. Their mouths have been magically glued shut. They can't talk, so they can't, like, cast is what they're trying to prevent them from doing, even though they're in a dead spot. And despite the fact that they're in a dead spot... Agatha realized that there's like this large group of people nearby at this like 
basically like Burning Man, except it's called Burning Lad, <laughs> like <laughs> festival. And she like uses that magic to summon flames. And then she, in, without speaking, without a wand, and then she and Penny just like bust out on the scene. They're like, throwing flames at everyone well because penny has swallowed the gem from her like magical ring so right, yeah so she's got the power the source started, and penny yeah. can like yeah. use like her magical item but i think the important part here is that she swallowed the gem because at the end of the book she has it back so yeah Which, you know what happened <laughs> yeah, she had to do some digging to get that stone back but i just I, love I, this team up so much because like through Carry On and Most of Wayward Son, Agatha is so resistant to Penny's like very aggressive attempts at friendship. And like they, they team, they have like the ultimate team up at the end there where they, they literally save the day together. And we'd love to, it, like Baz and Simon are like useless basically in the turn. They're not useless. Like Simon, even though he has no magic, he has wings and he's also like just a, like a very strong fighter and Baz also has magic, but like they're both very wounded in this and it is totally Agatha and Penny to save the day. And it, it, we love we love to see that versus these boys always being the ones who come in. And I, and I do like that again though, at the end when si- so Simon is shot and he is like on the ground and he like thinks that he's dying and he, he he's thinking, thinking to himself though about how like like I, I always used to be the one to like charge in and, and save the day and I like maybe I can do it one more time maybe I can do it one more time and I love that that's kind of like the last it's like he's letting go based thematically on where I think the next book is going to go thematically it's like his last breaking down of of that idea of who of who he is mm-hmm. um, and I think it's like a, a very nice a nice setup um, and so I just, I love, so I love that for Agatha in this book. And then I also love Penny in this book because she's very much like a Hermione. She's very smart. She's very much a know-it-all. Um, she has this boyfriend, Micah, who we learn a little bit about in Carry On is he came as an American exchange student for one year and they've had this long distance relationship. He's, she always just assumes they're going to be together forever. She hasn't seen him in two years because she keeps staying in England to take care of Simon, especially during this last year when he's a mess. And so they go to Chicago and Micah, she shows up at Micah's house unannounced and he's like, I dumped you like multiple times and you just wouldn't hear it. I, I love at one point towards the end of the book, she talks about how she, A, like it was unrealistic to think that she was ever going to marry Micah, like just because her parents met at Watford at an early age. So it's like further breaking down that idea that like who you meet at 14 is who you stay with forever. But then she also realizes like she thought she was invincible too because she and Simon always saved the day. That was their MO and all the years leading up to carry on. But she realizes like, you know, I, pre-humdrum Penny would have thought like I'm gonna save the day, but I, I I was never invincible. And she says I was just in the vicinity. Simon Simon was the power, and she was just just there with him. But that's why mm-hmm. I like then that she and Agatha are the ones who like really take take things down. So it's great uh, for them to both kind of break through who they thought they were, and establish their own power in their own ways yeah Agatha got to be the hero of her own story for once instead of just being a sidekick in Simon's dramas yeah Yeah. it's great it's great so but yeah so that I think covers most of the the things we want to talk about with Wayward Son um I think we do want to 
spend some time kind of theorizing where the series is going to go. The third book, Anyway the Wind Blows, com is coming out in June of 2021. Um, but before we get there, I think we do kind of want to talk about this book um, series, which mostly is well known for and celebrated for the the queer couple at its center in Simon and Baz, but at the it is written by, a, as far as we know, a straight uh, woman. And we kind of wanted to talk about this a little bit last week with our discussion of Carry On, um, but wanted to talk about this idea of non-queer people writing queer stories and how this kind of fits into that and what our thoughts are on that. But I, I think, you know, there's this call right now, and it's a very good call for, for having own voices stories. And for people who don't know, own voices are stories about people of certain groups, whether it be a racial group, a, a, a certain sexuality, religious, certain, sexual, religious yeah. that those stories about people then those groups should come from authors who are are part of that group and it's particularly important I think in stories that are are talking about the experience of those people so there's a difference between like writing a story that like a character happens to be a, a character of color versus like talking about what that person of color that, yeah. experiences so I don't know what, what I guess, of the overarching like, thought about that, but it's harder when it comes to books about sexual identity because it's not something that is like outward. Well, I think it is the sexual factor about it because a lot of times like there's a lot of criticism with uh, straight women writing, um, especially because, I mean, straight women typically do not write, you know, female-centric queer couples. They write about men and it ends up being like one of two things where it's either overly salacious and exploitive and it's all about the sex and it's all about, you know, it's just very voyeuristic. And then on the other end, it's going to be, you know, something that's overly pure and overly like wholesome and there's no sexuality involved at all. And that's kind of dismissing a lot of relationships too. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think my feelings on this book, and I don't know, I, I don't know that I'm the best person to like come. I, I don't want to like be like, yes, this is the rule and this is what's okay and what's not okay. What I think about this particular book series is, is I don't think that it's one of those explorations of, of sexual identity books being written by someone who we, as far as we know, is not part of that group. We do get hints of, of that here. I mean, Simon, is kind of shocked that he likes Baz. He just never had crossed his mind before. And there are references in Wayward Son to Simon being discomfort for uh, discomforted by attention that he gets like when he's with Baz in public. And also but an unwillingness to even think about what this means for his own identity or labeling. Like obviously nobody needs to label themselves. Um, and I think there was a really interesting note at the end of Carry On where he's talking about his therapist and being like, oh, you know, am I gay? Am I bisexual? And he's like, well, my therapist says that I don't need to, I don't need to think about that right now. I don't need to label myself. And that continues yeah. though into Wayward Son where he's kind of just put a whole wall up in front of, like he knows he likes Baz and he loves Baz and he is occasionally interested in, you know, a physical relationship with Baz, but in every other way, it's like a non, a non-issue. Yeah. And so for me, like, because that is 
different. So we're, it's like kind of what, what you said about how bad is there or Simon's therapist. Like you don't need to know. It's kind of an easy out for a rainbow to right. give herself. So she doesn't have to make that decision, which I appreciate because we, as she, you know, she's married to a man in real life. Again, I say, we assume she's straight, but she's never said otherwise. And there's all sorts of discussion out there about whether or not people should have to out themselves with writing these types of stories. And I'm not asking her to do that in any way, but I do think that does give her a convenient out, but it also makes it makes me think of this story more as just like a, a story that happens to be about two boys versus a, an exploration of their identity. And I think that that's where, you know, there's been a lot of controversy over the years involving um, Becky Altabali, is that how you say her name, who wrote the Simon versus the Homo Sapiens series, which is way more about the coming out process and the exploration yeah. of sexual identity. Um, and she got a lot of criticism uh, of, of that from the queer community. And then ultimately the summer, like felt like she was forced to out herself and did come out as bisexual, but which that's a whole other, uh, whole other thing. It's but a, I do it's think a this book is different. Pro- yeah. yeah. I, it's a rough I, line to walk because like on the one hand, you know, we should be pushing for own voices, but on the other hand, you know, nobody should feel like they have to out themselves in order to feel like they are legitimate. Yeah. And I, I think too, like we can't understate the importance of this book. I can't think of another fantasy series that is like this, that has a, a queer couple and how important that must be to, to queer youth who don't see themselves represented elsewhere. And that should change. We should get more of yeah. that. I, I want more of I that. I can think of one, but we'll talk about that oh. one. Okay, great. Later. Well, yeah, but in terms of like a big series, I, I think this is a, was a very important thing for people who did want some of that representation, particularly in Harry Potter, and they don't get any of it. There are no queer characters canonically that we know of in in Harry Potter except for Dumbledore which was an after the fact thing that she she yeah, said really after yeah that's like yeah. that that shouldn't be canon like you don't get to no. say you don't right this that's a, that Potter doesn't podcast. yeah you, you're not winning any points right. here like if you, so, I feel like if you're in the carry-on fandom you've already hashed this out right. <laughs> so you know yourself. yeah Exactly. So, I mean, I, I do think that this book for me, I feel, I feel okay. I want to read more stories by, by own voices, authors within this, this realm, but I, I don't think that there's anything in here that makes me feel like she's, she's walking a line. And we, we talked mm-hmm. about like Simon's issues with intimacy and whether or not that has to do with any sort of like gay panic. I don't read it that way. I think it's very tied to his his trauma. I think that when people notice him in Baz, it, it it's more him like feeling it's adding another layer of like looking at him that he doesn't he doesn't feel comfortable even looking at himself for all these traumatic reasons. But I do think she does kind of skirt the line because she doesn't want to go into that. And I I appreciate that she does not want. I think to she go uses it a little bit to highlight how much Baz and Simon aren't communicating because we don't even get Simon's POV when so like in in Wayward Son it's a scene with the lady at the airport looking at them holding hands I believe Mm -hmm. and we don't get that scene from Simon's perspective at all we get that scene from Baz's perspective because from Baz's perspective he thinks that Simon doesn't want people to know that he's gay because that's the only thing it's not the only Baz obviously was there when Simon went through the stuff at the end of carry on, but they haven't talked about how that's affected Simon. So like, that's the only thing that Baz knows about Simon. Right. I think it's completely an in-story thing. Like 
the gay panic and stuff, I think it's an in story from Baz's perspective thing right. because obviously he, he and Simon do. aren't talking. Yeah. And to his from his perspective, that's what it looks like. Yeah. I found so. a I found a tweet actually, and this is, relates back to our um conversation from last week. I found this while I was um, you know, looking for fangirl fan art on Tumblr as after we recorded last week's pod, as one does. Um, but I found this series of tweets from Rainbow, which is from 2016, but it, so it's pre-Wayward Son, but she talks about, you know, people frequently asked her, you know, whether Catherine Levi or Simon and Baz had sex within their books, and she said no. And then she said, I really want all three of those couples, she's talking about Eleanor and Park too, I really want all three of those couples to be mature and ready and emotionally safe with each other before they have sex, my head canon. But I also want all of those characters to feel great about sex in themselves and to masturbate and to know their bodies. I'm not really sure how much of that I'll ever get into in a book or what my responsibility is. So, you know, she is, is aware of that. And I think what, then this book is a natural continuation of that, right? Like when Wayward Son, you see that they are not, Simon in particular is not comfortable with himself for a bunch of reasons, mostly tied to this trauma he's gone through. And so therefore he, he cannot take those steps in, in a healthy way with Baz. So I'll be interested to see kind of where they go um in the next book and uh it's also interesting because the final book of the trilogy i guess anyway the wind blows is rated like 16 plus or whatever so is that for i don't assume it's for like violence yeah so she tweeted that it was for for content what does that mean? Does it mean violence or does it mean sexual content? I don't know. I, I, and I, I'll, what kind of we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that's a good uh, point. We do want to, and we won't do this on every uh, podcast, but when we're in the middle of like an ongoing series, I think it, it will be fun to do some theorizing about where the next book is going because this planned trilogy, the third book, anyway, then blows comes out, like I said, in June of next year. And we've gotten some hints from rainbow over the last couple of months that make things really interesting and kind of talk about things and where they're going. So this summer on Simon's birthday, which is sometime in June, I think, um, she tweeted out the first two words of Any Way the Wind Blows, which are Lady Ruth. And we know that uh, Lucy's mom is named uh, Lady Ruth Salisbury. So we're definitely going to get some continued um, exploration into Simon's parentage. I think that's so important. I think he needs to know who his parents mm-hmm. are, both of them, and come to terms with that in order to be. At ter- well, because that's going to help him work through the trauma of like killing the mage. Like, and it's right. going to be worse, I think, before it gets better. Like, that was your actual dad. But also, look how shitty he was. Like, right. Right. I still wish Simon wouldn't have had to kill him, but I'm not sad that he's dead. Right. So I'm really interested to see how that's going to come about. And I hope that he has like a good relationship with Lucy's family, like his grandma. Oh my God. I love, I've read a lot of, I've read a lot of fic that like (laughs) does. I wish you guys could see Melissa's face right now. She just completely had a... (laughs) <laughs> had a whole really emotional breakdown Simon with yeah. his grandma <laughs> but I've read a lot of fic where he does ultimately like have a relationship with his grandma and like we know that Lucy had a brother who wasn't allowed into Watford because he did not have enough magic and I think that that is um 
really interesting. And I hope that that, that family connection, which I've really enjoyed reading about in fic, like is something that is beneficial to Simon. And I think that that could be an interesting tie in too about kind of deconstructing this world that is very elitist and very exclusionary. Um, one of the, I just finished my reread of Waywards on this morning. And one of the last things Baz talks about is how the world of mages is like a sham and Watford is an elitist institution and it I, so I'm really interested hopefully how some of those things are going to tie in that these characters are starting to realize what a fucked up world that they've been raised in is and uh, I'm interested to see if they're how they might bring about change on their own the two well, we know that they're like basically they don't have one leader Penny's mom is the headmaster or whatever of Watford but then the coven is ruling the world of mages not even ruling they're like running the world of mages as a collective now so it's like bass is gonna come back and he's like i'm natasha pitch's son like i am the equivalent of like royalty from the old the old past and like i'm a vampire can i live bass is like a potential <laughs> i don't like, have to kill people i have right. magic like i would love him to like have some role in charge of this new world order as someone who kind of toes the line between the old the new people who are cast outside of of this world one of the things that's really interesting i think melissa i'm stealing this thought from you in our like notes so he shared about but like shepherd talking about like how like elitist magicians are they call themselves magicians even though there's all these other magical mm -hmm. beings who can do magic and i think that that is really going to be an interesting thing to to come about but it's a really interesting point about like baz's potential future role as kind of a unifying figure because he represents so much of all these disparate kind of fact factions within the magical community that he could be kind of like this unifying figure or like a bridge yeah i think that would be really cool to see baz didn't even know that he could drink from humans without killing them and then we know that he's been like basically malnutritioned from like eating animals this whole time which like I'm not saying we should be drinking human blood, but you know, whatever, it's vampires. So what are the vampires who are like living in the shadows doing? Are they killing people? Are they unhealthy? It's like, these are, they're, these are people, like they deserve to live full, happy and healthy lives. And like, uh, we've all, you know, in every vampire story, there comes a part when like human, there's at least a human that's, like, willing to give, like, their life force to, like, a vampire, and I'm not saying, like, that's specifically the stuff I want to see, but it's, like, if you're gonna really have the world of mages, and you're gonna make it a point to take care of all the magical creatures, which is what I think they need to be doing, which is what the mage sort of kind of working towards, like, vampires need to be part of that, so they all yeah. need to learn how to be, like, happy and healthy, and, like, not harmful to people, and, like, etc. And I think tied to that too is Baz's um, like own self discovery and, and realization about who he is as a vampire and what that means for him going forward. The issue of his immortality is going to be something that is really uh, needs to be talked about and and figured out. He he wasn't sure if he was going to live forever, so he was turned as a, a five year old, and he's grown. But we need answers on to whether or not you know, Baz is, is going to live forever. Sounds like it. So Lamb was like at least 400 years old if we did the math on it. But I'm like uh, confused by that because it's not like he stopped aging when he was turned. Right. Yeah. So that's what I don't yeah, know. It's a it, weird thing. Because he's a magician, does that, 
I think, yeah, I think it's got to be. So that's when I want more from Nicodemus coming into the the third book. We need justice for Nicodemus, who really just had some flawed thinking about how he wanted to live forever and that being a vampire was the way to do it. We don't know, though, that he's going to live forever either. So that'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. And then the that ties into the big questions of like what is going on with Simon's magic? Where is it? Is it going to come back? And if so, what what way is it going to come back? So we know from the cover of Any Way the Wind Blows that Simon has a sword on the front cover, which is the presumably the Sword of Mages, which in the first book he can summon um, whenever he needs it, but he cannot summon it when he doesn't have his magic in book two. So how does he get the Sword of Mages? Does his magic come back? What is going to happen on that front? Any thoughts? So my like two ideas are, one of them is that uh when we see simon with like the river lady she says like oh you're the drain and then she says that uh you put the magic back and more she basically absolves him of the damage he did to like the magical atmosphere which is really nice and then she like washes her like river water over his head so i'm like did simon just get baptized right now like (laughs) this is very emotional um but she says he put that back and more. So he was a legitimate magical child. They just uh, the mage it up a bit. The mage did a ritual to like fuck with how much magic he had access to. So it's like, did he give away magic that truly belonged to him because he was he d- didn't know how to control any of the things that he was doing when he was giving his magic to the humdrum? So is there some way for him to get the magic that he was supposed to have back? Or Shepard talks so much about the different the different magical beings, he calls them maybes, and they have some type of like innate natural control of magic, although it's not as uh, focused as it is with the magical speakers. So is there some type of magic that Simon can access like through his dragon self now? Because if he was really turning into a dragon, a dragon recognizes him as a dragon like hatchling. So is there something about him yeah. getting like magical creature magic ability. I love this theory so much. Yeah, that's it all the Simon is an actual dragon. Yeah. Piece. So they do meet a dragon. Yeah, like he's a baby. Says, so, a and she says, so the the dragon that they meet in the book is like very, very old. Mm-hmm. So she and she says she says that she came to the United States and that she's you you're from the north like me. So I'm wondering like where we know that um the mage was welsh so he's not from the north of england but i don't know where like lucy's family was from like are they dragons like i don't know i don't know so we know that like the dragons can like manifest in a physical human form um so that that could be a really interesting idea and then if he is immortal what will that mean for him and baz is baz mortal too um and then ultimately the question of just like where the relationship is going to go you know Rainbow writes angst very, very well. Um, she is a softy and she is romantic. And so that's why, that that's what gives me like the most hope, hope for Simon and Baz is that yeah. I know that she wants them to eventually be happy. Yeah. And she, on her latest um, Twitter rampage about, um, about these books, she's a, a great Twitter follow because she like lovingly trolls her fans. Um, but on her latest like out, pouring on twitter she was talking about how she you know someone's like please just give them a happy ending and she's like sure like i'll give them all happy endings let me write them for you right now and they were like very sarcastic and baz was like everything's great now like simon is doing watercolor paints and i've i've gotten really into bath bombs and it's all just going to be gucci suits (laughs) and love from here on out and i'm only 22 and life is great so she 
I don't think it's going to be that. It's not going to be wrapped up in such a right. pretty little bow like that. Well, she always brings up a really good point about um, people claim, like people always claim that they want just like, can we just let this person be happy, please? Let this person be happy. And she's like, sure, but there's no story there. Because mm-hmm. she's right. Like, I think she brought up, she's like, okay, so you want just a, a book where Agatha takes a nap, you know, because that's essentially what you're asking for. Because the root of stories is conflict. You need conflict to have a story. Otherwise, you're just sitting in a room, which yeah. is fine in short bursts for things like fan fiction when you need something to make you feel better. But really, the heart of stories is conflict. It's what pushes plot. It's what pushes character development. Without conflict, you have no character development at all. Like, you need this. Like, right. this is an important part of storytelling. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they'll, they'll be okay. Yeah. They might just not be happy boyfriends, like, as Baz says. Uh, Baz makes this joke about turning Simon into a vampire so he can live with him forever. And I'm like, okay, but really, though? Like, <laughs> you guys could do that. Or it's like dragons live for a really long time, so, like, maybe Simon doesn't age, like, correctly now. I mean, it's all there. The setup is there. There's several avenues for them to end up yeah. together forever and extended forever. But I just want Nico to find Ebb's wand so he can do magic again because they can use each other's pieces and I love Nico and I want him to be a fully functioning mage. That would be great. I would like that for him too. So are we done theorizing? Should we get to the superlatives? Yeah, let's do that. So this is the section that lets us gush a little bit um, more than we try to do throughout the episode. Um, so let's start uh, by talking about our favorite swoon-worthy moments. There are so many in this book. Guys, I don't think we did it. If you've not read this book and you're somehow listening to this podcast and are still with us over an hour in, um, really the beauty of these books is- Everything but the kisses. We spoiled everything but the kisses. And what makes this book so these books so special is Rainbow's like, lyrical style of writing and just how soft soft, soft these two are for each other when they're not um, in a, a state of existential crisis as they are when we were on. Um, but Carry On is, is great. As Melissa said at the beginning, chapter 61 through 69, which is when they have their first kiss in the aftermath thereof, is so good. It's so good. I mean, that's my, kiss. my favorite. That's definitely, I think, all of our probably favorites yeah. are the moments of... Um, of the series the equivalent in wayward son is this scene that they have in the back of a pickup truck it's their one moment of softness in that entire book um it's it's more tender it's more heart heartache because baz doesn't know if if this is going to last or why simon is letting him have this now um but that also just makes my heart melt because they do love each other so much even though they're struggling this isn't really gushing but i think it is worth noting that like chapter 61 through 69 is their first kiss and chapter 70 is the climax of the book and the shit hits the fan immediately so like these these boys have been enemies for how long you know nine years eight years they've been they've kissed each other four and a half times (laughs) and then the world and then the world falls apart and we and then in wayward son they're like oh our relationship's confused no shit (laughs) yeah yeah so they need some time to like be happy together again they've Um, literally never just like yeah taking a picnic or like anything <laughs> um uh, I guess a more platonic soon worthy moment I have is the softening of Baz and Penny's friendship in Wayward Son they're academic rivals and 
and both very smart and kind of know-it-alls. And so they're always at, at ahead with each other in Carry On. But like when uh, Penny is dumped or realizes that she's been dumped by Micah in Wayward Son, Bat, like she, they're at the Cheesecake Factory and she's like crying and Baz like co goes over and like comforts her and lets him cry on her. But then he still like has his classic Baz witticisms because he's like, please don't choke to death, Bunce. Imagine the humiliation of dying at the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> the development of their friendship and how like genuinely sweet and caring it is, is one of my favorite things. They're such a good example of like, um, show don't tell in carry on when it comes to Penny and Baz. Simon says that Penny and Baz are so much alike and then you see them both go for like a chalkboard when they're going to solve the mystery and it's not that like Simon says again oh see they both went for the chalkboard but it's just like Rainbow's just like showing you them yeah, they're, they're it's like the so impressive and then that keeps going throughout both of these books you see how similar si or uh, Penny and Baz are and I think that's why it's like so important for like Baz to comfort Penny but also one of my favorite soft moments in Wayward Son is when Baz is holding Penny while she's crying Simon is like I love him so much I just want to tell him so and nice. it just wrecks me that feeds in nicely to our next superlative which is favorite spell and Melissa I see what yours is and I know when that moment comes up so if you'd like to say what that is yeah, my favorite spell is in Wayward Son when Baz uses Kiss It Better on Penny, and she's like, Basil, that's a family spell, and then he kisses her cheek, and it heals their mouths, like, he shouldn't be able to use that spell on them because they're not family member, but he thinks of them as family people. I love it, love <laughs> it. Um, my favorite spell is on Love Light and loves light wings, which Baz uses at the end of Carry On to fly him and Penny up to the tower where Simon is confronting the mage. And you have to have like a knowledge of 14th century idiom and also have to be hopelessly in love to use it. And so he uses it because he just loves Simon so much and he uses it to go and save him. And I love that one. Tanja, do you have a favorite spell? Um, mine are not as sentimental, but you guys, you <laughs> well, guys there's got a lot of that, fun so. spells too. There's a lot of fun right. spells too. Um, so I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. Penny. Perfect. You're a genius and I love you. Um, I don't even know what that spell is for, but it's, it's good. to reverse the spell that you say. Okay, so like okay. she, I don't remember what the, she uses it when she wants to disappear Simon's wings. So she says a spell to like give him wings. Oh, and to, yeah, puts to, to get the, it like, back. Great. Yeah. And then the other one is these aren't the droids you're looking for because in a book full of great spells that are essentially pop culture references, this one is a good one. It's so funny too. Like she uses it on Simon's wings so that people don't notice th them. But then we see her use it like on a person to not notice any of them at all. And the guy just goes, these are not the droids I'm looking for. And like turns <laughs> and walks away. And he's like, why was I looking for droids? Yeah. I just love it. I love it. Yeah. So do you have any favorite quotes from this book? Because there's so many good ones. I actually only have two for this one because I got kind of overwhelmed trying to find the perfect quote. And there's just like a billion of them. So I picked the two that have stuck with me the most, even like when I'm not rereading and I don't like have them on hand. Um, the first one is from Fiona, who is an icon and a queen. And we stand a Nick Cave loving Doc Martin wearing bitch. Um, but it's, <laughs> um, front seats for people who haven't been kidnapped by fucking numpties. Wonderful. Iconic. Iconic. <laughs> so funny. Uh, <laughs> and then this other one is from Baz, of course, and it is, uh, you were the sun and I was crashing into you. 
about, of course, Simon. Yeah. It just hurts. Just like such beautiful lyricism from Rainbow when they are just like gushing about each other. Melissa, do you have favorite quotes? Um, yeah, I'm obsessed. Well, okay. So when Wayward Son, this is a silly one. When Baz is making his list of reasons he hates Illinois, he like talks about the sun so many times. And then at like towards the end of the list, he goes the fucking sun. We get it. You're very fucking bright. Like he's losing his shit. And it's yeah. so funny to me. <laughs> Baz um, and I are the same. Yeah. yeah. In Carry On, um, this is my real favorite because it always just makes me have to melt into the floor. But in Carry On, uh, when Baz says, I would cross every line for him, talking about Simon. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I can't handle it. So good. Um, I picked an angsty one from Wayward Son from the pickup truck scene where they're in the back of the pickup truck. Mm. And um, like Simon is just like, they're so into each other. And he, and Simon says, I'd give him all that I am. I'd give him all that I was. I'd open up a vein. Like he, he's just, he, they, this connecting their hearts together. I just, I love it so much. Um, I also love uh, from a humor standpoint, when Baz is losing his shit on the road trip and he's in Illinois, um, as someone who's from Illinois, I love his commentary on it, which is as follows Illinois land of the damned a place that manages to be both hot and humid at the same time you might well expect hell to be hot but you don't expect it to also be humid that's what makes it hell the surprise twist the devil is clever (laughs) and then at the (laughs) I also love too at the end of uh, wayward son when like Simon has been shot and Baz is like running to try to help him it like opens with a Baz POV chapter and all he says is go ahead and shoot me this isn't my favorite shirt <laughs> those one line chapters are always so good I love it so much because Baz's fashion game in wayward son is unparalleled and a lot is made about how he doesn't want to get like his like fancy floral suit like dirty at one point and so but I just love point, him so much yeah. I love him so much I, love him I so worship much. at the altar of Baz and his uh scarf and his convertible oh, yeah. scarf yeah. so much um, ah. the one the one chapter the one line chapter in carry on that always cracks me up is when uh they just kiss in the forest they're back at Baz's house and Simon's like I don't know what Baz is thinking and then it's just one sentence Baz chapter he goes I don't know what I'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> so funny to me yeah he's very funny we didn't talk uh, nearly we again we reined it in because we want to talk about critical analysis but baz is funny and soft and a a fashion icon and so smart and such a good magician and he is he's just great and we love him love him dearly and then we did have like a, a favorite character and like favorite arc section I mean, there's no spoiler uh, here. Our favorite character collectively is Tyrannus Basilton Grimpitch. Basil. Yeah, he is the best. The tension and carry on before he gets there is one of the best things I've ever read because you're like, how could this guy be possibly worth this hype that's being built up for him? And then he comes and he's you get it as soon as yeah. His his entrance back to Watford is one of my favorite moments, like just little small moments in the book because it's like. This is a dramatic bitch, and I love that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's our favorite for our favorite boy. Uh, he's the best. We um, we will post a picture on our socials, but we all have matching <laughs> Watford 
soccer jerseys that say pitch on the back. We all wore them to record because, of course, when we saw this t-shirt, we all had to buy it because we love Baz so much. So yeah, our love of Baz is not surface level, friends. But Melissa, we because we know you love Baz, that's why we had to have you here today. We hope that when anyway the wind blows, we would be so grateful if you would come and join us at that. Oh yeah, I'll podcast. be knocking down your door. Like, yeah, great. absolutely. Let um, me talk about this book, please. So before we officially wrap up, Tasia, do we want to announce our next book? Yeah, so next we are going to be reading and covering Autobiography by Christina Lauren. And it is the story of um, a young bisexual boy who moves to kind of Mormon country, Utah, and falls in love with a missionary son. And it is angsty and great, and I can't wait. Yep, so it's going to be fantastic. Before we go, Melissa, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Yeah, so I already mentioned the two podcasts I do. Those names are Wild Pretty Things and Still Great Bub. And you can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O-Yellow. You can find me on Instagram at mslaughter. Yeah, that's me online. Uh, Tasia, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at at RagyCakes. All right. And I am on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. Don't forget to rate and uh, subscribe, review, all that yeah, fun we stuff. we would love that. And you Thanks. can find our podcast at Actia Age on Instagram and Twitter and ActiaAgePod at gmail.com. Please email us. Please hang out with us. We love it. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks, friends. Bye. Bye.